Amen. Well, go ahead and open up in your Bibles. We are going to be continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We are almost finished. We'll be finished by the end of this year in the book of Romans. And today is really part two of a message that was begun last week about what does it look like to pursue unity through deferring or, or, or saying no to some of our freedoms and what does it look like to defer to other people's freedoms. And so we're going to be looking at this morning specifically really um, what does it look like to pursue unity in the body of Christ and then how do you use your freedom? How do you use your freedom? So let's turn in God's word to Romans chapter 14. We'll read verses 13 to 23. And if I could ask you to go ahead and stand if you're able, let's stand and read God's word together. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would preserve the unity that you have given to us in this church through the bond of peace. God, I pray that you would preserve the unity of this church and not let us be carried away with different preferences and desires, God. Not let us prefer our practice over another's practice. God, I pray that you would preserve the unity of the church by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that those things that we desire, we'd be able to lay down and offer up to you, God. And Lord, I pray those things that we are free in, we'd be willing to offer up for the sake of our brother and sister. God, thank you for your word that just instructs us practically about what does it look like to live in unity. God, I pray that you would reinforce these things for us, Lord, and we would see our need for them. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. And God, I pray that you would give me grace as I speak, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill each and every person here with your Spirit. God, we need your Spirit to be able to hear. And so we pray for your Spirit to enliven us and to enable us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the country we live in, it was born on the principles of of freedom and liberty. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we have liberty in this country. And I hope that you're grateful for the liberties that we have in this country too. But there was this, this cry of freedom and this desire to, to no longer have an external rule or an external authority. And most of that is probably okay in this country. But some of that is not okay. 
It's not always okay to say, no, I don't want an external authority or an external rule. You know, often the freedom that we have in this country, it it developed into things like wanting our individual rights to be protected. And, And that can be good if we're seeking the good of someone else and seeking their rights to be protected, right? It's good that you might want your neighbor to be protected if they're different than you. And you might want that right protected. But it turns really ugly when you're like, no, I want my rights. I want my demands, my authority. I want my rights to be respected. It can be very difficult. You know, in the 80s, I, I was a child of the 80s. I was born in the 70s. And I, and I grew up, and it seemed like the, the rallying cry of my generation, it was that you got to fight for your rights. Now, the, the last part of that was to party. But that just shows you the self-indulgent the self-indulgent, really, attitude of my generation, people in their 40s. And, and I don't think that's lessened today. You know, the idea of, you got to fight for your rights. you got to defend your rights. you got to defend your rights, whatever that might be. Your preferences, you, what you think is right, must be defended. And so freedom gets twisted into that. Freedom gets twisted into a means to satisfy my own desires. A means to really get what I want. You know, that's not new, though. I think that, that idea of freedom and liberty from external rule, it's been since the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve, um, when they were first given a command by God, the very first thing they did was seek to throw that off, to have freedom from God's rule. So freedom is not always a good thing. They sought to have freedom from God's rule, freedom from God's authority, freedom from his kingdom, his reign, if you will. And when they got it, it we all know how that turned out. It wasn't good. You know, this passage is written to a church that is struggling with these very ideas. They're struggling with what does it look like as a church to have different preferences? What does it look like as a church to have different convictions? What does it look like as a church that we can do certain things and we don't believe doing other things is okay? In this context in particular, although it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, it's the, it's the principle translates the Jews back in that day, they'd just become Christians, and they believed that since the Old Testament taught the, all these dietary laws, that, that they really still needed to keep those laws in order to honor God. They didn't think they needed to keep them to be saved. They weren't being legalists, because Paul had something to say against legalists in Galatians. He says that if you were legalists, he wished they'd just be cut off. But he doesn't address them here like this. So they're not legalists, but they're people who believe, you know what, my conscience is sensitive in an area where they grew up in, and they feel like they need to keep those rules. And you might be able to identify with that as well. Many of you might have grown up in an area or a church or a background that was a little more strict. You had different practices or different preferences. Or you may have grown up in a church, and your way of holding preferences strongly is by not being like them. Anybody here ever wrestle with those ideas? You grew up in a church that was more strict? Anybody here grew up in a stricter church or stricter background? All right. Anybody here ever tempted to think, you know what? I'm going to be identified because I'm not like that. And you find that that's identifying you. I know that's a struggle for many. And then the struggle on the other hand that, that Paul was addressing was that some, the Gentiles, who actually really grasp their faith in Jesus Christ and knew that he set them free from bondage and slavery to everything, they now knew that it was permissible to eat meat And they could continue their practice of eating ham or bacon or whatever delightful treats that they indulged in back then. They knew that it was okay to drink wine because after all, wine that was offered to a false deity wasn't really anything because there was no such thing as a false deity. There's only one true God. 
but there was, there was this threat to the unity of the church. And, and so this passage, it does translate today because there is a threat to the unity of the church today. There's, there's many and multiple threats to the unity of the church today in this church, in every church, in every body of Christ. God's word is very applicable because the threat to unity is when we start to focus on our freedoms, our liberties at the expense of others. We start to focus on what we prefer, what we desire, instead of deferring. Instead of saying, you know what, I can actually sacrifice my preferences, my desires, for the sake of somebody else, for the good of somebody else. Unity in the church was really essential back then because it affected their Christian witness. People would see that, wait a minute, they talk about loving each other, but they're not unified. They don't really love each other because they're holding their preferences strongly. And that really translates to us today, too, because we can have strong preferences, all of us. And we hold them strongly. It threatens our witness as a church, and it threatens the effectiveness of the gospel. And also threatens to tear down the very institution that God has built up, the church. You know, a wrong use of freedom, a wrong understanding of our rights, our liberties, they can lead to some really harmful things. It's not different today. We all have different second or third or fourth level things that we can disagree on. You know, we don't disagree on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, what he came to do, that he came to take our place. There's, there's no room for disagreement there. Those are clear teachings of the Bible. There's not room for disagreement where there's clear teaching in Scripture about prohibitions against sin. There's, those are first kind of tier issues. But where it's not clear, those are second tier or third tier, or even fourth tier things about what the color of the carpet might be. You know, and, and believe it or not, churches have split over choices of carpet colors. Now, I guess it must have been a really nasty looking carpet, but I can't even fathom that. But you know what? What things do you hold strongly? What preferences, what ways of doing things do you hold strongly? What do you demand? What, what freedoms do you have that you hold on to that you think everybody must hold on to? Or maybe what things do you look down on other people that they don't believe the same or they practice differently than you? This passage is really relevant for us. You know, hopefully we can defend what we believe biblically. Hopefully you have convictions that we learned last week. Convictions are important and we need to hold them, right? We should all have convictions and hold them biblically. But let's be careful that we don't hold those convictions so strongly that we abuse our brothers and sisters. The main idea that God would have us see from this passage is that how we use our freedom, it's critical to the life and unity of the church. How you and I use our freedoms, our liberties, and matters of preference, it's, it's critical to the life and unity of the church. If, if we hold our preferences strongly and we despise and judge others, it will tear them down. If we despise people because we think they're lesser than us, it will tear them down and hinder them. Or it can actually tempt them to do what Paul says is sin, which is actually going against their conscience. You know, maybe you're tempted to pass judgment. Anybody here ever tempted to pass judgment on anybody else? How about just this week alone? I'm I'm raising my hand, okay? So anybody tempted this week alone to pass judgment on somebody else? How about anybody this week alone tempted to despise somebody else because they believe different than you? You don't have to raise your hand on that one, but you can if you want. You know, maybe you feel like you have liberty to participate in something and you despise those who say you're sinful if you do that thing. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe you're looking forward to Thanksgiving because you know there's going to be some disagreements at Thanksgiving time over areas of practice or preference. 
And maybe you feel despised because you do something that another believer here believes is wrong. Like, I don't know, maybe you go to a certain rating movie or maybe you have a glass of wine occasionally and, and maybe you feel judged because of that. Or maybe you look down on somebody else because of those practices and you think, how could they believe that it's not okay to go see a PG movie? Or how could they believe it's not okay to have a glass of wine? Because after all, Jesus drank wine and it wasn't like everybody says this watered down stuff all the time. <sighs> scandalous, I know that was really a scandalous statement. But if you're tempted either way to flaunt your freedom in someone's face, you throw up a barrier to them, to their growth, or you're tempted to despise somebody else for their freedom, and you judge them and you tear them down. And the first idea I think we're gonna see in these verses, really verses 13 and 16, is that selfish use of freedom, Paul says it destroys. That's a really, that's a, that's a huge word that Paul uses, selfish use of freedom, it destroys. And if you think about that, that's really severe. Selfish use of our freedom, it can destroy what God has built. It can destroy a fellow believer's walk. Either by tempting them to some area that they're weak in and tempting them to sin. And so then they, the snowball effect happens and they say, well, maybe it's okay to do all things that I think are sinful. And so you tempt a person with a weaker conscience or maybe you tempt them in other ways. But selfish use of freedom destroys. You know, I don't think my kids, they don't mean to be mean. Well, 99% of the time. Um, My kids don't intentionally try to be mean any more than, or actually probably far less than I try to be mean sometimes. But when they're playing with their toys and they are leaving them all over the place, they're not thinking, hey, I really want to cause pain for my mom or dad when they get up in the middle of the night. They're not thinking that way. You know, when if you've ever stepped as a parent, it's, it's kind of the running joke about stepping on a Lego, it's because it's really painful. How can this little rectangular, hard-sided object cause so much pain in the middle of the night? But as a dad, I've stepped on a lot of them, and it's painful. It causes hurt. Now, admittedly, it's not like long-term hurt, and so you might roll your eyes like, okay, give me a break. Stepping on a Lego with barefoot's not a big deal. But it's a stumbling block, literally. It's a little small block, but it's stumbling brick, maybe. Um, I've gotten corrected many times. They're not Lego blocks, Dad. They're Lego bricks. Okay, sure. But maybe, maybe when you have practiced your Christianity, you've been selfish and you've not really done anything maliciously, but you're not aware of the people around you and where they're at in their walk with the Lord. And you're not being sensitive or kind and, and picking up after yourself, if you will. And so it's like you're, you're leaving these toys out over the place for them to trip on. And Paul talks about that like a stumbling block. Something's unintentional. We can do that as fellow believers. We can commit practices that actually cause other people to stumble without even know it because we're not being sensitive. We're not being thoughtful. We're not loving one another. As a few weeks ago, we learned in the earlier part of, I guess it was Romans 13, or, or four, yeah, Romans 13, talking about owing each other love. We, we don't owe each other to obey each other or to submit to everybody else's whims, but we do owe each other something. We owe each other love. And what, is it, what does love look like? Love looks like saying, you know what, I'm going to not be selfish in my use of my freedoms and cause someone else to stumble over them. Instead, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be careful. I'm going to be cautious. Now, Paul's not talking about fearing man or worrying about what does everybody around me think. That's actually sin, and that's addressed in another place. But saying, no, what does it look like to be proactive and think, hey, the people who are coming to my house tonight, what would be loving behavior for them? How can I relate to them in a way that would be loving to them? 
how can I relate to them in a way that would say, you know what? Maybe I feel free in a certain practice, but I'm not going to talk about uh, the great movie I just saw because I know that they don't go see movies. And I'm not going to cause them stumble or whatever that might be for them. He says, don't put, op- don't put those kind of stumbling blocks in, in the way. But then he talks about something else. He talks about another way of doing things. And, and he says, don't put obstacles or barriers in their path. And that's a little more violent of a word. That's a, that's a word that means don't stop them. It's like building a wall up and saying, hey, here's my freedom. Now, I don't know about you, but I've actually been tempted all the time, actually, to, to live that way. Because there's something in me that I just want to flaunt what I, my freedoms are in Christ if somebody, I think, is looking down on me for them. I want to kind of shove it in their face and say, hey, look, see, I'm free to do these things. That's a selfish, self-centered way of living. And Paul addresses that. He says, don't put up obstacles. Don't put up obstacles in the way. And that obstacle, that image, is something we deliberately put up in front of somebody else. I was talking to a, a friend who's a pastor in another church, and he was saying, yeah, you know what? I'm just tired of the fact that some people in our church don't drink alcohol and I'm just sick of it and I feel like that's wrong of them and they're looking down on me. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to have wine for our communion. Well, is it as Christian freedom? Absolutely. And that could be a wonderful God-glorifying thing to do. But could that put up a barrier to anyone who has a strong conviction in that area? Needlessly, yes, it does. It's, it's like building a wall in the middle of the highway Throwing up a wall in front of a fellow believer's vehicle, you're going you're gonna to cause them to crash is the kind of the language that Paul is using here. Now he says nothing is really unclean. It's not, there's no external practice that's not prohibited in the Bible that's unclean. What, what you drink, what you eat, what you put in your body, what, all these externals, what kind of clothes you wear, um, what, whether you see a movie, don't see a movie, unless it's clearly unbiblical or clearly sinful or promoting some sinful practice clearly he says that you know nothing in and of itself is unclean but it's unclean if anybody thinks it's unclean and what he's talking about is if if you have a weaker conscience and you think you know what it is wrong for me to do this certain practice but you know what my brother thinks it's okay so I'm going to go and do that well that actually is sin for me even if it's not sin for them because why I'm not seeking to honor God I'm trying to honor my brother instead of honoring God I'm fearing man. It's become something that's unclean for me because I think it's unclean. I do it because it's somebody else. He says, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus nothing is unclean. But look in verse 15. He says, but if your brothers grieve at what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And you see what Paul's doing there? He's tying it all the way back again. He's tying it back again. What do you owe? We owe a debt of love to one another. And so he says, if, you, if your brother is grieved, if he's made sorrowful, if he, is, if he is struggling because of what you're eating, you're no longer walking in love. Now think about how silly that is. Think about causing a brother or sister to stumble because of what you're eating. And Paul's using as an example, as an illustration, saying, you know, as something as simple as what you put in your mouth, is it really that important? Is it really that critical? You, what you would like to eat, what you prefer, is it really that much more valuable than your brother or sister in Christ? And he says, if somebody's grieved about you, then you're not walking in love. You're, you're, in fact, hating them in a sense. In Galatians 3, Paul, Paul commented on that similar idea, just in a different place. And he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom 
as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't say, you know what, I am allowed to do this and I'm going to do this. And so I don't care what anybody thinks. But he says, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The application of what Paul's been talking about of loving God and loving our neighbor because he talked about loving God by in, in Romans 12, 1 or 2. If you remember that passage, he said that we are to, in full view of God's mercy, present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's our spiritual worship. That's how we love God. And then he goes on further and says that we actually owe, because Jesus has given us his love, we owe a debt of love to others. And now he says... What walking in love looks like is not grieving a brother or sister. Martin Luther, I quoted him last week. I'll share that with you again. He says, a Christian man is a most Lord of all, subject to none. And you can stop there and maybe you really love that quote. You know, I kind of like that quote, right? Luther was great with that kind of stuff. A Christian man is most Lord of all, subject to none. But then he continued the quote and it goes downhill He says, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We we walk a tightrope as Christians. On one hand of this balancing pole that we carry is, yes, we have absolute liberty, but it must be balanced by loving one another. Yes, we are totally free in Christ Jesus, that no practice defiles us, but yet, what does love look like? Now, you might be thinking, what, what is, why is this a big deal? Well, let me share with you why it's a big deal. Because the Apostle Paul thought it was a big deal. Because God thought it was a big deal. Enough that he spends a huge amount of time in the book of Romans. Because the unity of the church is critical. The unity of the body of Christ. The unity of this body is important. He says, by what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Don't destroy them. Don't, don't render their faith useless. Don't cause them to be miserable. Don't, don't ruin them by what you eat because Jesus died for them. Jesus died for the brother or sister. You have a different practice or different preference than everyone here who has a different preference than you. Maybe it's over style or dress or practice in the church or whatever it might be, the, an issue of secondary or third or fourth importance. Maybe... Maybe we were called to think, you know what? I need to remember that Jesus died for them. And unless this is a Christ dying level issue here, I need to be willing to flex. I need to be willing to give up these preferences. Because I don't want what I regard as good to be spoken of as evil, meaning to cause disunity, disfellowship in the body of Christ. You know, if our, our desires and our preferences are what guiding us and are ruling us, then we're not really being ruled by the kingdom of God in our practice. What are you being ruled by? You're being ruled by an awareness of love for others, the fact that Jesus died for your fellow brothers and sisters. Are you being ruled by the fact that you are seeking first his kingdom or are you seeking first your own kingdom? And why do I ask that? If you look down your Bibles, look down in, let's see here, what verse is it? In verse 17. Look down in verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's he getting at? He's he's getting at something here. He's getting at the fact that that serving in our freedom and through our freedom, it it demonstrates God's kingdom. If we are serving each other with our freedoms, it actually demonstrates that we're living for another kingdom and it's not our own. Which kingdom do you find that you are living for? 
That's what, how Paul is confronting us today. Are you living for your kingdom preferences? Are you living for your kingdom practices? Or are you saying, you know what, my kingdom preferences, my practices, whether or not they have biblical convictions or not, I'm actually going to be willing to subvert those things, subject those things for the sake of God's kingdom and building up his kingdom and for the sake of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, I know of no bigger joy robber than of disunity with a fellow brother or sister. There's no bigger robber to our peace if we are experiencing conflict. Now, this doesn't just apply to the church. Let's get really personal. It applies in our marriages. Those who are married. Or it applies with your siblings in the home if you have siblings. Or it applies with your relationship between you and your parents if you're an only child. Um, This applies in every setting. When we begin to live for our own kingdom, we are showing that we're not living for God's kingdom. And the result is not righteousness, not peace, not joy. Sometimes we lack joy because we're living for our kingdom. Sometimes we lack joy because, or peace because we're living for our kingdom. Sometimes we see that, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling in these areas and, and it's because we're not living for God's kingdom. But he says, you know, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with those things. It's, it's all about righteousness and peace and joy. And if our goal is to seek first the kingdom of God, then we're going to find that God's going to bring righteousness. He's going to help us grow. Even in areas that we have convictions are we're right and somebody else is wrong, he's going to help us grow. He's going to help them grow. And he's actually going to give us peace in the midst of that as we're living for his kingdom. He's going to give us joy in the midst of that. And, and he's going to give us righteousness or help us actually grow to be more like Jesus, who, after all, didn't Jesus give up his rights so that we can give up our rights? Jesus gave up all of his rights. He was... He was the rightful ruler and owner of the world. He deserved worship and and everything Jesus said was 100% accurate. He didn't have to look up any biblical convictions. He had them. He, He was the word of God. And yet he gave up all of his rights, even to the point of death. If we're serving in freedom, we demonstrate God's kingdom. And look in verse 18, he says, look at the result of that. He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. It's acceptable to God and approved by men. He's going back again in Romans 12, 1, who says, you know, what does it look like to live a life of worship? It's acceptable and pleasing to God. And he says here as well, it's approved by men. And then he's not just talking about giving up things in these verses. He's giving clear commands positive. Look in verse 19. He says, so let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do you want peace in your relationships? Do you want peace in your home? Do you want peace in your family? Do you want peace in the church, peace in your small group? He says, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Instead of the converses, he's talking about tearing each other down by our preferences, tearing each other down by what we desire. He says, don't demand those things. Instead, pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. You have a disagreement in an area of practice or preference? What would it look like for you to pursue what makes for peace in that relationship? That's convicting. I was thinking about it, it, it myself this past week. I was grumpy with my wife. It's a euphemism for being angry. And it's because I was wanting something and I wasn't pursuing peace with her, which is actually mutual upbuilding. I was pursuing my own upbuilding and I wanted people to serve me. I wanted things to go my way because things weren't going my way. So I was feeling self-pitying. He says, don't don't live aware of your rights, aware of your demands. Live aware of the fact that you're living for his kingdom, that 
Christ died for your fellow brother and sister in Christ, that this is a way that we love each other and that what will make for peace and mutual upbuilding is actually living for the sake, for the good of others. Serving in our freedom and, and serving with our freedom, it demonstrates God's kingdom, but it also does something else, and he tells us in verses 20 to 23, it also guards something. It guards the body of Christ. Serving in our freedom, it guards the body of Christ. You know, I, I don't know if there's any members of the, of the military, of, the, of, the, of any of the armed forces in our midst. Is any armed force members in our midst today serve the armed forces? Dan, I know did. I think Matt Hall, a few other guys I'm aware of did as well. And we're grateful for those who guard our freedoms, right? We're grateful for them. I, I am very grateful for the fact that we have a standing military that guards our freedoms. I'm, I'm grateful that knowing that, you know what, our coast is guarded. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful knowing that there are people who monitor the skies, that we're guarded there, that they monitor the borders, that, that there is freedom is being guarded, that the privileges that we have are being guarded by the military. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm glad for that. But you know something funny about the military? So the military guards our freedom, but if you've been a member of the military or you know somebody in the military, they're not really free. Not exactly. I mean, sure, they have all the freedoms we have, just they're constrained in a lot of ways. They're told what to wear. Um, When they're in the battlefield, they're given what they can eat. They don't have this wide choice. They're told what to wear, what to eat, where to go, who to go with, how to go there, and where not to go, what not to do, how they can do certain practices, and how they must speak to each other. Everything they have is actually constrained. There's really not a lot of freedom in the military. So ironically, our military that guards freedom for us subjects their freedom or submits their freedom to their commanding officers, willingly. And if you think about that, boy, I, I mean, that's why you really respect somebody in the military because they submit their freedoms, in a sense, to their commanders who can tell them pretty much anything to do within the law, at least. And so there's irony there in that they use their freedom, people who are in the military use freedom to submit their freedoms, subject their freedoms, give up some freedoms. Why? for the sake of others' freedoms. Christian, we're called to live that way. We're called to say, you know what, I've I've got lots of freedoms, but you know what those freedoms give me? They give me the ability to willingly give them up so that I can serve others and guard their freedoms. And that's the kind of language that that Paul uses here. He talks about kind of guarding the work of God in, in verse 20. He says, don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Instead, guard the work of God. Don't make other people stumble. Be aware. Subject your freedoms for the sake of the work of God in somebody else's life and the work of God in the church. He's talking about actual food and drink, but the principle applies to any practice or any preference here that we are in faith that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, how do I know that? Because look in the verse here. He says, everything is clean. Everything is clean. He says, don't for the sake of food or for anything else. Destroy the work of God. Something could be perfectly lawful or permissible before God. But that's not how we should evaluate our behavior. How do you evaluate your behavior? Are you aware that you've been conscripted into to God's army, if you will, and that you were called to guard him? To guard, not to, I mean, to guard each other through him. 
evaluate whether or not we're building up and seeking the good of our brother and sister in Christ. There's a scripture in, in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul's talking about the same kind of thing. He says, all things are lawful. If it's not, if it's not explicitly illegal or against God's rule, he says, all things are lawful, but he says, not all things are helpful. You know, I have had a difference in my theological perspective on how we come to salvation with a family member, not in the church, but outside the church. He's a fellow pastor, actually, in a, in a, up north now. But I had disagreements. And when I was really foolish, we got together and we debated each other about what was really lawful perspective to have, that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, that nothing, nothing we add to our salvation, no work that we can do, not even our work of belief. We don't add anything at all. We don't, we don't, do any of those things and really God must make us alive in him before we respond to him. And I, and I foolishly spent many thanksgivings ruining thanksgiving by debating something that was not helpful. Instead of saying, you know, what does it look like to love my brother? Oh, my brother-in-law. Now we both learned and we don't, we just, we don't go to certain topics because we love each other. We want to build each other up. And actually we have a good relationship now. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Are you seeking to build up your brother and sister in Christ? Now, instead of putting a barrier in front of somebody, it's as if we would go and say, you know what? Let me help you with your life. Let me help you be stronger in Christ. It's like taking bricks, and it's like building somebody's foundation up. Say, so you know what? Hey, let me help you with your foundation here. It seems like you could use some help. Let me help you. Let me build you up. Let me encourage you in your walk instead of... Instead of putting barriers up in your walk. Yes, we can eat or drink anything and, and there's no practice or preference of ours that's, that's allowed by God that is un, not unlawful, but it, it, it's the question is, are we being helpful? Are we building up? And then look at verse 21. He says, guard your fellow believer. It's not, he said, it's good not to eat meat. It's good not to eat meat. Now, does that mean that everybody here needs to be a vegetarian? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But he's saying, if you know what? If your brother or sister is really going to sin over what you eat, then it's good that you don't do that. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. Now, he's, he's not just relegating that to food and drink. He says, or anything else. Or anything else. Don't do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. There's no preference or practice of yours that you're permitted to do that causes your brother to stumble. If you don't do that, it's, it's good to withhold those things. So what are we talking about there? It's guarding our fellow believer. In World War II, because of the German U-boats, it was a danger of supply ships that would leave the United States and go to England if they were by themselves. And so they would have to go in these convoys. And the problem with these convoys is they would go painfully slow for many of the ships because they'd have to go at the speed of the slowest boat because they wanted to guard those boats. And it's that picture here of, of guarding our behavior so that we don't cause a fellow believer to stumble. Or it's like in football, I got to watch a, a really good game yesterday. If, if you're a Clemson fan, at least, it was a good game. It ended really well. There was some excellent blocking going on. A blocker who was faster than a receiver, though, they wouldn't do any good 
if they didn't match the speed of the receiver and slow down with him. If the, if the blocker's like, you know what, I can run a lot faster than him, so I'm just gonna take off, then it, it would kind of be pointless. It wouldn't do any good. Or maybe a different illustration of, of someone who is a shepherd and he's guarding some sheep. If he went at the speed of the fastest sheep and he left the other sheep behind, then a good portion of the flock actually would be sacrificed. He said, it's good to refrain from those good practices. It's good to hold back. So what calls our brother or sister to stumble. And he look in verse 22 and 23. He talks about the third kind of guarding here is a guarding of conscience. Now it's not just guarding our own conscience, but it's guarding somebody else's conscience. Look in verse 22. He says, the faith you have, now this is kind of funny. Don't take it out of context. He says, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. He's not talking about sharing the gospel here. Okay, so don't rip that verse out of context. Say, you know, well, I heard on Sunday morning that the faith I have, I can keep between myself and God and tell no one else about it. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Every passage is in a context. He says, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Meaning, you might have faith for a certain practice. You might have faith for liberty. You might have faith to do something. But if you know that your brother or sister is going to stumble because of that, don't, don't go bragging to them about it. Keep it between yourself and God. And also, it really infers that you're, what you're supposed to do is not just keep it to yourself in your words, but don't demonstrate your practice in areas that's going to cause somebody else to stumble. Just because you believe something is, or strongly believe something is a good practice or preference, whether it's in your home or in the church or where that might be, he says, keep it to yourself. That kind of goes against the grain of our, of our American identity, Right? Because we're pretty outspoken as a nation. If you've ever traveled overseas, um, the people that you don't want to be around are typically Americans. When, when I went to Israel, I, I, I hung around people who were not Americans and I, because they were really embarrassing to me. They were. It was, we were loud. We were outspoken there. It's, it's, it's very outspoken. And so it goes against our, our kind of American identity of being loud and outspoken. And, and to say, you know what? I don't have to tell everybody those things. I don't, I don't have to have those preferences. Just because I'm in faith for a certain preference or a practice, I don't, have to, I don't have to make it known. I can keep it to myself because I love somebody else. Now, the second half of the verse, it can be challenging to read. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. See, all along he's been talking about not judging somebody else. But now he says, in a kind of a backwards way, it's hard to read because he says it in a negative. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. What does he mean? He means that if you flaunt your privileges, if you don't keep your faith yourself and your practice and your preferences, then you actually are, in a sense, condemning yourself as being sinful, judging yourself as sinful. So he says, he says you're blessed, really, if you have no room to judge yourself. If you don't pass judgment on yourself by your behavior of flaunting your freedoms or championing your preferences or demanding that you be heard, he says, blessed the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Other hand, verse 23, it governs the behavior of somebody whose conscience doesn't allow them to practice certain things. So he says, you know, for the sake of your own conscience, he says, you know, defer. Don't, you don't have to practice those things you have strong beliefs about. You don't have to, because you have such strong preference, you don't have to do those things. And you're blessed if you do that. You, your conscience is going to be clear. But then he says, if you have doubts, in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. And what that's speaking to is kind of two things. If you tempt your brother and sister to a practice they think is sinful, you're actually, con- 
condemning them to sin, but he's also saying if you're, if you're practicing a certain thing that your conscience doesn't allow you and you're doing it for because you fear man or what other people think is best, he said then you're actually condemned in doing that even if everybody else in the church is doing it and you, you feel like, you know what, I, I can't in good conscience do this certain thing. He says because eating is not from faith, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. He says you're better off abstaining if you're unsure. If you're not acting out of faith that God has given you, then it's sinful for you to do it. Now, that's pretty broad reaching. Think about every practice that you have. Think about the practices that you're not sure of. He says, if you're not in full faith that, that, that it's allowed by God and God's given this to you as a freedom, then don't do it. And by the way, if you're, if you're not sure and you do those things, you're gonna be sinning. And don't cause your brother or sister to sin in that way. The righteousness, I I was thinking about what's the motive that Paul's been talking about in this passage. He's been talking about the fact that we have a righteousness from God, we have peace from God, we have joy from God. Those things he was talking about in the kingdom of God that we have. And the fact that God's made us righteous in him is meant to result in our desire to pursue righteousness. The righteousness that we have is secure in Christ. No one else can make you sinful because you're completely right with Jesus. That's meant to give us peace. Knowing that, you know what? I can give up my freedoms because I have something that can never be taken away. Unlike even as stable as we think this country is and that our freedoms might not ever be taken away in a sense that we think, we're always gonna be a free country. We have a freedom that's more secure in Christ Jesus. It will never be taken away. And because of that, we can willingly say, you know what, for the sake of peace, I'm gonna give my freedoms up. Because I have a righteousness that can never be taken away. I have a freedom that can never be taken away. No matter if I am shackled and in chains or in prison, I can sing for joy. Like Peter and John did when they were in shackles, they were singing for joy because they were free even though people enslaved them. The fact that God has made us right in him and nothing can take it away, that's meant to make us joyful in him. That's the kingdom of God. That's what's important. You know, if we are less concerned about our rights and our freedoms in Christ and what we deserve, what we believe is a right practice or right preference that we have, I think it would free us up to begin to love other people and say, you know what, I don't, I don't have to do these things because, because Jesus has already won my freedom. I don't have to worry about whether I give these things or up. Nothing's going to constrain me. Instead of moping around when we can't do something or begrudge when we're put out, because we sacrifice our preferences. If you understand that you have the righteousness of God, you have peace with God, we have the joy of the Lord, it can never be taken away. No matter what we do, then living that way becomes a privilege and delight. Instead of demanding our rights like Patrick Henry did, ironically in a church, by the way, when he stood up in a church in St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, and he stood up and he says, give me liberty or give me death. Ironically, in a church, we can do that today. We can say, give me my liberties. Give me my rights. Give me my freedoms. And God calls us to something different. Instead of fighting for our rights in the church, he's calling us to something different, to something far more glorious, far more God-honoring, far more worthy of worship and praise. And that is, God has set us free so that we're not bound by our preferences. God has set us free so we're not bound 
by our specific practices. God has set us free so we can give up our freedoms. You know, unity in the church is critically important and, and we have a part to play. We can be a part of building up the body of Christ and using our freedom for the life and unity and upbuilding of the church. You know, it's not the big things typically divide churches. It's not. It's normally small things. Actually, I heard a story, and we'll, I'll close with this in just a minute, but I heard a story of this missionary family. They moved overseas, and they became a part of a church plant, and this church was full of other Christian missionaries from the United States. They went there, and this one family, they really liked peanut butter. Now, I can relate. As long as there's chocolate involved, I'm, I'm good. Peanut butter and chocolate together. It's a match made in heaven. But this family really loved peanut butter and they were overseas in a nation that really didn't have a lot of foods that they liked or enjoyed and this family really loved peanut butter. And so they had some friend of theirs deliver peanut butter on a regular basis to them. They would ship them peanut butter once a month. Sounds kind of silly, but if you've ever eaten a lot of foods that are not like what you're used to and some of the flavors and sources are not familiar, let's just say, you, you might really fall in love with peanut butter and they did. And so they really indulged in it. And then what they found out, though, was their fellow believers in the church there thought it was wrong to eat peanut butter because you were really holy if you gave that up. Because peanut butter was hard to come by and you were sinning because you were hoarding peanut butter to yourself or something like that. I know it sounds silly, but this is a real conflict that happened. And so this family said, well, no, we have a right to eat peanut butter. There's nothing unholy about eating peanut butter. Unless it's the kind with chunks in it, and then that's unholy. But why do you, I would eat peanuts if I wanted that. But so peanut butter is not unholy, they said. We, we have a right to eat peanut butter. Enjoy ourselves. And this is a privilege and a freedom and a blessing that we have. And, and we're going to do this. And so um, they didn't go outside their home, but they continued to eat their peanut butter. And it caused a rift. Now the other people in the church were saying that those people are being sinful by eating peanut butter. And so this family actually left the church left the mission field and, and several of the family members walked away from God over peanut butter. And I think that's silly, but if either side had said, you know what? It's okay for them to have a practice of eating peanut butter that our conscience doesn't allow us to eat peanut butter because we feel like we need to honor God by giving up our what we want most, really. And if the people who love peanut butter said, you know, we don't have to eat peanut butter for the sake of the unity of the church and gave it up, then they, there wouldn't have been such division and disunity in the church. It's, it's most often the small things, it's preferences or ways of doing things. It's, it's ways of doing things in our families, ways of doing things in our home when compared to other believers. Maybe it's ways of how you raise your kids or how you discipline or don't discipline them. It's, maybe, it's, maybe it's how you school or don't school them. Maybe it's what you see or don't see on TV or movies or whatever it is. Or maybe it's a certain practice in our worship service. Or maybe it's a polity question. Or maybe it's something that's, that else that you're not sure of and you're saying, you know what, I'm going to hold this, this preference strongly. It's, it's relatively little things in the light of the gospel. But we, we can make those little things big things. They can be our peanut butter on the mission field. And Paul is helping us see that don't let these things that are lesser in comparison to the kingdom of God come between you. What leads to division, disunity, lack of relationship 
It begins most often in small matters of second, third, or fourth level importance. How we relate to each other, though, in those small areas, they are critically important. So as we close, just want you to ask yourself, how am I loving my, start in your own home, my sibling, my parent, my, my, my spouse, how am I loving my family members? How am I loving people in my small group? How am I loving people in this church? Am I willing to give up my preferences? And will I think proactively about how God would have me do that? What for? For the sake of the unity of the church, for his kingdom, for the fact that Christ died for them, and this is a way that we can love others because Jesus has given up all for us. Amen? Let's pray. And Joe, if you'll go ahead and, and bring the band up, and we'll sing together in just a moment. Father, I pray we wouldn't let our preferences and differences and desires that are feel so large to us but are relatively small in comparison to your kingdom, your gospel, the work that you're doing in, in us and in the church. God, I pray we wouldn't let our preferences, our desires, our practices get in the way. Lord, Lord, keep us from putting a stumbling block in front of somebody else. Lord, keep us from hindering anybody else's growth, Lord. Keep us from demanding our rights, Lord, demanding our own way. God, I pray that we would love you, live in a way that's acceptable to you and approved by others. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to open up our eyes and see people around us, not live selfishly, but Lord, selflessly. Because Jesus, you, were, you ultimately were selfless. You gave your life for us. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to give our preferences to you. For your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.